Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today, we'll listen to John Darnielle's talk about his creative process at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Hailed as the best storyteller in rock for his work as the front man for the band The Mountain Goats, John Darnielle proved his storytelling prowess transcends genre with his debut novel, Wolf in White Van, a finalist for the National Book Award in 2014. To help introduce John Darnielle's session is his fellow 2016 festival speaker, David Dark, author of several books, including most recently, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. In addition to writing books and essays for publications including MTV, Pitchfork, and the Oxford American, Dark teaches at the Tennessee Prison for Women and Belmont University, where he's assistant professor of religion and the arts in the College of Theology. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, I forget that this is uh, possible. <laughs> where have we? Where have we found you this morning? You found me um, doing a lot of grading. And um, looking over my notes um, from the John Darnielle talk and just contemplating him as a person um, who is doing a really righteous work, it seems to me. Um, Yeah, I'm amazed all over again by him lately. Yeah. When did you first discover John Darnielle? Hmm. Oh, here you go. There is a producer called John Vanderslice. Do you know the name John Vanderslice? I do know the name John Vanderslice. Okay, I heard I was driving somewhere. We used to have a great independent radio station called um, WRVU at Vanderbilt. It has been around since maybe the late 70s. It's gone now, but they would have had REM on in days when it mattered. They would have had so many interesting guests once upon a time, but I was listening to them and I heard this song and I realized that it was a song about David Lynch's film Mulholland Drive. Right. Um, I think the song is called Mulholland Drive, but in addition to being a song, it was just a powerful and um, helpful um, response to that amazing film which um, I think is just one of the best films ever. That would be a tangent. (laughs) Anyway, I hear it, and I Google the lyrics to figure out who sang that song, and it was John Vanderslice. And then I start Googling him, and I realize that he's a producer, maybe known as a producer as much as an artist. And I find that one reason he's known is this band called The Mountain Goats. And then I'm looking at all these pictures of John Darnielle and interviews, and it's like, well, now I guess I got to get into the mountain goats. Um, mm. And I have. And I am, uh, oh, and then the book comes. And Wolf in White Van is everything that I'm loving in the music um, in the form of an amazing novel. Who knew that he would add, um, that he would commit this act of literature called Wolf in White Van? <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I've just, I've, I've been deeply attentive to everything he 
puts out there ever since. Well, you use the word attentive, and I thought I, I thought of a phrase that you often use called, uh, or, or something you talk about, which is our attention collections. Yeah. Um, during John Darnielle's talk at the Festival of Faith and Writing, which we're mm. about to listen to, um, when he was describing his creative process, which is yes. something that he talks about in, in, in his lecture, being something that he doesn't really like to talk about in that yeah. he finds it difficult to kind of uh, encapsulate. And instead, yeah. he just kind of gave a rather rambling but kind of perfect yeah. uh, sort of overview of how he came to write Wolf and White That's Man. Right. Um, yes. And it kind of captures, to my mind, what you talk about when you talk about how important our t what what our attention collections are, the things that yeah. grab us. Can you talk yeah. a little bit both about attention collections, what you mean by that, and also what you were thinking when you were listening to John Neal talk about this process? It's a clumsy phrase, attention collection, but I think it really gets at this fine, the, it's not just the, the call of the artist, that it is the summons of anyone who wants to exist sanely among other human beings. Find out what's in there. Do your work. Or I think of Carolyn Forche's line, open up the book of what happened. And of course, I, I can't say this without thinking of the saying that I probably quote um, to every class and almost every time I speak publicly, a saying attributed um, to Jesus of Nazareth. It's from the Gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. You have to find out where you got hurt. You've got to find out um, how it came to be this way you're feeling right now. And so his rambling presentation, absolutely. He talked about obsessions he said that he had been obsessed um, for most of his life with what is referred to as the Judas Priest trial, and specifically um, the two folks. I have it in my notes. I have their names, James Vance and Raymond Belknap. These were the two men um, who attempted suicide. One succeeded and one didn't. Um, after just dealing with, as um, John Darnielle puts it, the pressure of um, your own trying to make sense of your relationship with your parents, trying to find a safe space. He said it really beautifully because he even described their love of music, their conversations, as f trying to find a headspace that they could live in, right? So again, this is a tension collection. This is trying to have an emotional life um, that you can comfortably reside in. So he looked at that tragedy. News of that tragedy came to him when he was dealing with his own tragedies. And he said, you know, sometimes you have obsessions that you can visit in song. And other times you have obsessions that, that you visit through something longer. And it seemed that the novel is his own chewing over um, his own creative process concerning an obsession. I think of a line, I'm sorry I keep rambling here, and I'm not going to be able to figure out who said this, but somebody once said, write what will take your breath away if you don't write about it. That That's your goal. And I say that to my students. 
I say it to myself when I'm trying to figure out what I could try to write that I might be able to get published by someone. But write what will take your breath away if you don't write about it. And he he just gave us this amazing um, sort of thumbnail sketch of not only his songwriting process, but his own process of being social, of lifting his own voice and lifting the voices of others. Hmm. Thanks so much for talking with us about, uh, about that time at the festival. Thank you. And now, here's John Darnielle on creativity at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A note for our listeners, this recording does include content and strong language that might not be suitable for children. This is a uh, profoundly underprepared talk, uh, and that's partly by design when I saw what I was to be talking about, uh, which is essentially, um, I'm, go- I'm going to ramble a lot, I'll just warn you on this. Um, when you are, when I say you, I mean me, um, when, when a new album is coming out, you go into promo season, right, promotional season, and they start uh, setting up interviews, phone interviews. I, I hate talking on the phone and have all, all my life, so this is a, 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 you know, I mean, there's worse problems to have, but still it's like I wind up on the phone for three hours a day for a couple of weeks and get really cranky. And, uh, and, I, and you get these pet questions, whoever you are, uh, that people ask uh, uh, you, and the one they ask me is tell me about your creative process. I don't understand this question, uh, and I will never understand this question because, uh, you know, if you're asking what I work with, it's one of these and a pen, right? And, uh, but, but I think, you know, it, it's one of these, um, it's a question that I think, uh, it comes from a noble place, trying to understand how the stuff that winds up attempting to bear meaning gets made, right? Uh, but, but I don't know that you can ask it in a general sense about a person and how they make things, right? I don't know that it's a, it's a meaningful question per se. Uh, but it's one of those things that if you hear it enough times, well, I like to compare it to when you apply for a job, right? And they ask you a lot of the time, why do you want this job? And you want to jump over the desk and strangle them and say, because I need money, because I need a goddamn job, right? You know, and uh, it's, it's an insulting question. Right? It's like, why would you ask me that? I'm here. Isn't that proof enough that I want the job, right? Uh, it's one of those where you can really, if you, if you get into an obsessive frame of mind, am I talking too loud? Is that okay? I, I worry about over-talking. So um, uh, if you get into an obsessive frame of mind about it, you can actually take the question to some interesting places and then wind up criticizing yourself for being angry about it in the first place because you have wound up having some productive thoughts about it, right? Um, and that's, what, that's where I'm at today uh, because I, I think about the book and I'm working on another book and when you get to the end of, of a process like that, you start to ask how you got there and it's kind of inexplicable. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to say, well, you, you'd have to be me to, to, to understand, you know, that, and, you, and you also, there's a line in um, uh, A Christmas Carol uh, by Charles Dickens where uh, Jacob Marley, the ghost, appears to Scrooge and, and threatens him with his chains, and Scrooge is very skeptical and says, you might be an undigested bit of beef, right, meaning maybe I ate something and I'm seeing a ghost, and, and this is also the case with the creative process, that you can get irritated with something, and, uh, 
and as a means of, of just sort of expressing your irritation, wind up going someplace interesting. This is an aside, but in my music, there's a whole series of songs uh, going to blank, all these song titles, going to California, going to Morocco, going to wherever. These songs just started as a way of making fun of all my peers from high school, because uh, in Southern California, and probably everywhere, but uh, when you're younger, any problem that's local seems specific to where you're from instead of general to the human condition. And, uh, and all these people I grew up with, especially if they'd been to Europe or New York, would come back to Claremont and go, oh, I hate it here, I can't wait to go back to New York. And I would go, you know, you're gonna bring your problems with you to New York, because it's not like New York is full of perfect people or anything, you know. And so I started writing these songs to make fun of that urge to flee where you're from. Uh, and romanticize the place that you're going to. But it became a productive thing because then eventually you go someplace yourself, you wind up fleeing. Um, at any rate, I wanted to talk about Wolf and White Van uh, and where, how we get to this character. If you haven't read the book and you care about spoilers, I, that's cool, but I don't care about spoilers, right, at all, right? I don't care what you know going into the book, going ahead of it. It is a book of reveals, but I don't think it really matters if you know them ahead of time. Partly this is probably me bringing my own biases to the question because I'm extraordinarily forgetful, so if you spoil everything for me, five minutes later I have no recollection of you telling me, so I, I am spoiler immune. Uh, but if you think you might read the book and you don't wanna know how the guy got to be the way he is, put your earplugs in now and then I'll talk to you after the talk. Um, so in um, uh, 1981, uh, a couple of young men named James Vance and Raymond Belknap, uh, bless you, in Nevada. Uh, that's just a nervous tick, I'm sorry, I have to do that. Um, so, uh, in Nevada, were uh, having their normal sort of day, uh, which involved drinking a lot of beer. Neither of them was old enough to drink beer, but they did. I, this is scandalous. Uh, uh, drinking beer, smoking weed, and listening to uh, what then counted as heavy metal, what now we would think of as hard rock. So Iron Maiden, The Scorpions, uh, maybe earlier classic ones like Rainbow and UFO, and most notably for our purposes, Judas Priest. Uh, Judas Priest was one of the bigger of the arena metal bands at the time. Uh, they make melodic, fast for the time, not at all fast now, heavy metal. Uh, they, on an earlier record, they actually covered a, a Joan Baez song memorably. But, uh, but, uh, but these guys came from uh, lower middle class homes and uh, broken homes uh, with uh, stepfathers instead of fathers and, uh, uh, and struggled as many adolescent men do and women uh, to communicate with their parents to, to reach some sort of understanding. That's normal, but, uh, but their homes weren't nourishing to them and neither was their environment or their culture and so they were doing as we all do and creating a culture of their own to participate in. Uh, but theirs was, was uh, delineated by feelings of alienation and, uh, and, and a lot of drugs, like myself at the time, but a different sort of thing. Um, they had access to firearms, so, um, so after a long day of arguing with their parents and yelling and listening to really loud music and trying to get in the headspace they liked, they went to a, uh, a playground. And in the documentary that exists about these young men, uh, the one who died said to the one who didn't, I sure fucked my life up. They had a rifle with them and both of them shot themselves. Uh, one died instantly, the other did not. His parents, desperate to find some sense of meaning, 
in this incomprehensible loss. And I want to say, sometimes people say, well, you can only understand this if you're a parent, but I think if you ever had parents, you can imagine what it would be like to come home one day and find that all the terms by which you had lived your daily life are now changed. Uh, the one who survived, his parents desperate to, to find some meaning in this, sued Judas Priest, right? Uh, and it's okay to laugh about that because that's funny, right? It's sad that this thing happened, but it is absurd to imagine that a rock band from Birmingham, England could somehow reach into a young man's brain and cause him to do something so incomprehensible, right? Uh, but they did. They sued Judas Priest, and it was during the 80s, a time called the Satanic Panic. If you don't know about this, there was a time when this whole, and this is a different talk that I would love to come back and give, <laughs> when this whole post-Miltonic idea of Satan as some creature who's actually more powerful than God, because God can't make you respond, but Satan somehow can get inside your brain and make you do things you don't actually want to do that go against your nature, which would make Satan a really remarkable creature for whom I find no biblical support whatsoever. Um, anyway, but this, uh, this post-Miltonic idea of Satan was pretty popular in, uh, in uh, American evangelical circles in the 80s, and, uh, and there was this idea that, uh, that Satan, through his chosen emissaries, the rock bands, uh, was was inserting backwards messages into music. There were conflicting ideas about how this happened, right? One said that the rock bands were sort of in on the con, that they were Satan worshipers and that they were doing this on purpose, but the one that I like better is the one that says that, that Satan was like just sort of somehow worming into the process, you know, through mysterious magnetic particles or whatever, and you know, influencing them to say something that when you play it backwards will send a message that then will get into your brain, right? When you listen to it, not by you playing it backwards, but through this mysterious, again, undocumented spiritual process of a forwards thing getting into your brain and your brain somehow makes backwards sense of it, right? There are, I should comment, um, uh, uh, just as an aside, there are people who believe in this process but who do not see any religious thing in it, who think that your brain actually can can, can spell something out uh, that, uh, that adheres backwards and that you can absorb that message. My favorite one of these, I think, right now, well, there's two. Um, there, there's one that if you play Another One Bites the Dust backwards, it's supposed to say, decide to smoke marijuana. <laughs> I really love the verb decide there. Okay. It doesn't say anything about whether you should act on that decision, right? <laughs> it's a very metaphysical thing. Um, and the other one was during, uh, during uh, the first, uh, uh, Obama's first campaign for president, uh, uh, you know, the, these guys came out of the woodwork, these backwards masking guys, to tell you that the, the devil was, was working through the candidate, right? And in his uh, acceptance speech in Chicago, you can look this one up on YouTube, uh, they insisted that he was saying, thank you, Satan, over and over and over again. <laughs> And so they play it backwards for you. And of course it says, but if you listen to that enough, it's kind of scary, right? It's like, it could get into your blood, right? And so, so okay. So, all that is background, right? So these James Vance and Ray Belknap shoot themselves uh, on a playground in Reno, Nevada in 1981. At this time, young John Darneal is going to high school, right? 
and does not know who he wants to be. He lives in an abusive house, and uh, his sense of self is pretty plastic. That's I, I, me I'm talking about, right? I don't know who I am going to be. I'm not cool, and I'm scrawny, right? I can't fight, and I'm not interested in sports, except for boxing, which I can only enjoy, well, in professional wrestling, uh, which I can only enjoy you know, as a spectator. I can't really participate. Um, I have been moved around a lot as a child. I still miss my birth house and my father at this time. And I'm going to high school. There are 900 people at my high school, and I am afraid that I am going to be destroyed. Uh, I absolutely intend to take drugs as soon as I get the chance, right? But I don't, as of yet, have the chance, right? But I see the kids in the parking lot, uh, across the, the parking lot in the park that's not part of the school, but that you can go to from the school during your off periods. Claremont High at this point in time is, uh, is on what's called a modular system of classes, which means that even if you're 14, you can design your own schedule to have a free 90 minutes or whatever, uh, which makes a big difference once you get a car when you're 16. Uh, so, but across the parking lot, you can go hang out with the kids in the denim jackets and the feathered hair and the, uh, and the, and the alligator clips in their hair, which are roach clips, right, for holding the, the small end of a joint with uh, once it would burn your fingers, right? I'm not one of these kids, but I am taking up smoking, right? And so I go hang with them and listen to them talk about the music they like, which is Ozzy and the Scorpions and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. And I am orbiting them in a weird sort of way. It's cool, anybody can hang out up there, but I'm not really of their number. I like to listen to old Genesis records, right? I'm getting into, <laughs> getting into Lou Reed, but I want to understand the music they like. And I also have a next door neighbor named Sean Doby at this time, whom I've known since before the camps were dividing as sharply as they start to in high school, right? And I will go over to Sean's house and he will play me some Maiden or some Scorpions and we'll talk about ways to communicate and will smoke cigarettes in his mom's garage because his mom has learned, you know, you, you pick your battles with your kids and if your 14 year old is smoking cigarettes but he's staying out of your hair, then maybe you just go ahead and hope he quits smoking later. So that's where I'm at when these guys shoot themselves. Uh, I read about it in the paper. It's not, uh, this is prior to cable coming to Southern California. Very short aside, cable came super late to Southern California because the movie studios and the TV studios were very powerful there. So when the rest of the world was entering into the 24-hour news cycle, we weren't having that in Southern California. It, TV was like four stations in UHF. UHF was a paradise of evangelicals and professional wrestling. It was the best thing ever. But, uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, so I'm not seeing the story on cable. I'm reading little tiny notices about the Judas Priest trial. I'm pretty interested. I know that they have brought Judas Priest to Nevada to testify in court that they did not in fact attempt to cause their fans to kill themselves by putting backwards messages in their records. Uh, but I can only read this in one or two sentences, right? Uh, there's no, I'm in an information poor environment. That is an important, data point, right? When you have a lack of information, you make your own. I think this is an extraordinarily important step in the creative process. I try not to fret about the information-rich environment we all live in presently, but I know that in the absence of knowing much about the trial, I thought about it a lot, and I made my own stories about it. Not, you know, not sitting there writing them, but you ask, so, oh, there's an interesting thing going on. I wish I knew more about it, you know, but I don't, and there's no way of finding out. Uh, so, so it just sort of festers, like it's an image that you carry. A couple kids shot themselves. They made Judas Priest come and say they didn't mean to kill those kids. Uh, that's all I know, right? 
time passes and passes, uh, metal becomes much more extreme. Uh, Judas Priest is no longer really a heavy metal band in any sense of the word because the growth in metal is to much louder and much faster and much more open satanic stuff. Uh, you know, there's a band from France called Antaeus, puts out a record called Cut Your Flesh and Worship Satan. That's the way that metal goes, right? It goes into these much more extreme places. Judas Priest is pretty quaint by comparison to these guys. Um, I go through a metal phase and then rap explodes and I get super into that. I'm transcribing NWA lyrics on a typewriter. And then I start writing songs and they're indie rock songs and that's its own sort of environment and that's where I go and that's where I'm at when I wind up in Colo, Iowa. Colo is a town, I like to say, of 773 people when we lived there and 771 now, right? Uh, it is a railroad stop. Uh, nobody really moves to Colo on purpose. If you grow up there, then you stay there. If you can't afford to live in Ames uh, next door, then you live in Colo. Our house cost $275 a month. Uh, the city couldn't convince our landlords to make repairs on it, so the city bought the house from our landlords in order to knock it down. That's how we wound up moving to Ames. Uh, and that's where I'm living when, on a 56 kilobit per second connection, I start to get curious about the Judas Priest kids. I remember hearing there was a documentary made about it, but internet connections are slow, so all I can see are these gruesome images of the survivor kid from this documentary that does not circulate. It's not on VHS. It's probably out there in somebody's tour bus at that point, but I'm not on a tour bus, right? But I'm thinking about these kids from time to time, not obsessively, but every once in a while, if I listen to Judas Priest or if I listen to any speed metal from the 80s, I'm thinking, yeah, well, there's two kids, wow. That's heavy. And I'm also getting letters from people to whom my music is meaningful. And you start to navigate these sorts of uh, pathways, you know, that when somebody says, well, I listen to this song and this is what I take from it, and you want to go, well, it's not up to me to enforce a reading on you, but that's not what I meant, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's a weird uh, thing to start navigating, and you think about Judas Priest, you think about people, or you think about, you know, uh, uh, the guy who shot John Lennon, right? Uh, these people who, who take, take messages that weren't there into strange places, and whether they actually did that or whether that's the way the people around them explain incomprehensible behavior. And, and that's where I am making what sense I can of small bits of information. Uh, my notes say uh, to go back now to earlier childhood. So when I was four, before the divorce, I was in love with Judy Garland uh, because I saw The Wizard of Oz and it knocked me over. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I announced to my mother that I was going to marry Judy Garland when I grew up, and it was her sad duty to tell me that Judy Garland was dead. Uh, but, but, uh, but tied up in, uh, I mean, of course, the Judy Garland who was dead for me was, was 10-year-old Judy Garland, not the, the, the grown woman. But, uh, but, but tied up with Judy Garland was this image of Kansas, the mythical country of Kansas. I had been born in Indiana, but was moved to California before I was fully conscious when I was like a year old. So I had a, a sort of lost terrain, you know, a sort of Xanadu, Indiana. It's, I mean, y'all know where it is, it's just, it's like just over the border, but, but for me, it, it was like the moon or, or Oz, right? It was this place that I knew I was from, this place where I'd first seen light, about which I knew nothing and could know nothing except that my mother and my father had been young and in love there. And then about a year later, they divorced in Indiana, becomes 
even more of a mythical place for me, as does Kansas, where Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz is from. I have this idea of Kansas, and I've never seen it, right? So you know, you can, I can look, read about it in the world book, but, uh, but I'm a child, there's no internet, right? Uh, all I can know about Kansas is the tiny, tiny bit you might hear about Kansas growing up in Central California in the 70s, which is nothing, right? No, there's no reason for anybody to be talking about Kansas, right? And so, so, so I'm carrying this place in sort of in a hidden place in my heart for years, not thinking about it, not dwelling on it, not sitting down and saying, well, now what do I think about Kansas, right? If you ask me about my creative process in Kansas, I say, well, you know, I had a loose thought about Kansas. Now, when I start touring, I go there, as it turns out, Kansas, like absolutely any other place in the world, is just another place where people live and work and love and die, right? Uh, but, but a place you haven't been is a place of infinite possibility and potential, right? Uh, so I have, I have these things in my mind, and I make a living in music, and, uh, and I have these obsessions, some of which I'm able to visit in song, and some of which seem bigger than a single song can really address. And I read a book about Black Sabbath called Master of Reality that leans on some experiences I had as uh, in my early 20s taking care of adolescents in locked psychiatric facilities. When they would get there, the first thing our job would be to do would be to take their clothes and possessions away and put them in a robe, ostensibly to protect them from themselves. I disagree strongly with this process, uh, but, uh, but it's what they do, presumably so that they won't hurt themselves. But with the adolescents we worked with in the mid to late 80s, we would take their Walkman and tapes away because a lot of the nurses and doctors bought into this idea that the music they're listening to for comfort uh, might actually harm them. I did what I could with this idea because I was 22 and I would say, you know, in a private moment, I get fired if, if uh, you know, if you mention this to people, but this music is fine, there's really nothing Music's not going to hurt you, right? So, uh, because it was, it's so important, you know, to to an adolescent who's rootless to have have some experience of transcendence, right, of of, of art. So, um, so, so I had all these experiences, and I write this book, uh, Master of Reality, which is the first half of which is uh, an adolescent in a locked ward writing to his therapist asking for his Black Sabbath tapes back, and the second half of which is the same person years later writing to his therapist to explain, I got sent to a state hospital and it fucked me up, right? Uh, and I was, this, this opened some ideas for me uh, about the way, the many ways that we relate to single touchstones of art and music. When I finished the book, it felt like such a triumph. It's a very short book, but writing any book is, is difficult. It's, it's like climbing a mountain, that, you know, like a big mountain where you go, you know, at some summit you go, well, this seems like I've come a long way. If I turned around and went back now, I'd still feel like I accomplished something. When you get to the top, you can't even remember that previous summit, right? It's like, it's, it's distant history, right? So I finished it, I handed it in. I had been so enjoying working on the book every day that I just opened up another document. I use the word processing program called Melel that is really uh, interference free. It's just, it's, it's like using a typewriter, which is what I learned on. Uh, so I just opened up another document. I didn't have anything in mind at all, right? But I had been writing a lot about music and I have all these images of Kansas and of the park on the other side of the parking lot at Claremont High and of some disfigured guy whose parents have sued Judas Priest uh, there was a documentary made about it, as I say, but I couldn't see it. I only knew about it, right? I knew that in it, the disfigured boy speaks at length on his own behalf. I may have seen a clip or two of it, 
but in the absence of actual hard information, I have to make up the story myself. And I just started typing. They say you're supposed to write what you know. When I was a young writer, I resisted this idea with bone and blood. I wanted to write about what I wanted to write about, right? Not, not being a kid in Claremont. But I'm older now, so I started writing about kids in Claremont, right? Because uh, that, that is what was going to make it flow. And I wrote about a bunch of kids sitting around a parking lot um, smoking cigarettes and listening to Judas Priest and listening to the Scorpions and listening to Rainbow and listening to Ozzy, right? And the chapter went along, and I didn't really know where I was going. I was just writing a scene that had a, a number of these touchstone images that, again, I haven't been obsessing on or cultivating, just taking note of, just knowing what seems interesting to me. And I wrote about 3,000 words. And, and at the end of it, the narrator wound up at his house, and he had a brief conversation with his mother, and he went into his room, and he shot himself in the face. And I thought, well, that's a terrible short story, right? This is not a good short story at all, right? And I didn't know what to do with it because it was just, I was just killing time. I'd been writing the Black Sabbath book every day and now I had, you know, I didn't want to not work, so I want to be working, you know? And so, so I finished that and I said, what can I do with that, you know? Well, I wrote a bunch of other chapters where his father spoke and where his chaplain spoke and where an imaginary figure from his past spoke but they didn't really seem to be going anyplace. And I asked myself, well, okay, wait, if he is still alive, what does he do for a living? I mean, he can't really work retail, I don't guess. He's terribly disfigured. I mean, theoretically, he could be employed there, but it, it, I don't feel like if your face is the sort of face that this surviving kid from the Judas Priest documentary has, probably a position in the public sphere is not something you're gonna seek out unless you get to a really heavily healthy place, you know, which this kid isn't and so so I was on an airplane changing planes and looking for magazines to read and it was an international flight and uh, you know and I've read that month's issue of Harper's and the Atlantic and all the stuff we bourgeois types read and uh, uh, and and so I'm looking at the other cooler stuff right uh, stuff about fantasy gaming about a game called Warhammer which is like it's, it's like it's D&D &D without the uh, without all the uh, heavy sort of plotting, you just sort of go to war, right? And it's like all these little figurines, you know, orcs carrying hammers and stuff like that. And, uh, and there was a Warhammer magazine, and I just bought it in this changing air, air, airport. Why not? I need something to read, you know? And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe my dude is a game designer of some kind, right? But I didn't want it to be video games, and I wanted it to be something he could do in isolation. So I imagined that maybe you could play a game through the mail. As it turned out, when I started doing research later, uh, there were a few of these back in the day. At the time, I was just sort of guessing. I was doing what people do, asking a question. What's he do for a living? How does he make any money, right? Did he sue somebody? Well, we know the Judas Priest trial did not end with Judas Priest having to pay these kids. So, so no, he has to make a little bit of money somehow or another, so I had this play-by-mail game, right? And then I had to write the rules of the game, and that's where the entire book went. My point, if I have one, is that your creative process, mine anyway, uh, isn't something I can track or describe as generality. For specific instances, I can tell you how something came into being, right? But I think that what this tells me is a thing I also resisted very strongly as a young man, that creativity is self-expression. 
I really didn't want to hear that when I was younger, right? I really didn't want to hear that anything I make tells you something about me, right? I wanted to say, look, I can, I can inhabit a narrator, right, and method act that guy, and it has nothing to do with me. I want to say that. This is why some old songs in my catalog I no longer want to perform, because I say, well, I don't like that person or what he stands for, but I'm not willing to claim anymore an absolute separation from that character. All I can do is not write that kind of stuff anymore, right? Uh, I do think that, that all writing eventually, uh, inviolably, is self-expression. What that tells you about what you write might be good or bad, right? Uh, it might, might be flattering or unflattering, but I think it comes from the stuff inside you. I think it would be literally impossible to write something that doesn't tell somebody about yourself, which is what Wolf and White Van also is eventually about, and that's what I've got. Thank you. Special thanks to John Darneal. His next book, Eternal Harvester, is slated to release in just over a month, and you can follow him on Twitter at mountain underscore goats. Thanks also to David Dark. You can follow him on Twitter at David Dark. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Annika Kaptime, Carolyn Meitskins, Deb Breenstra, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you are especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.